It is great to have you uh, with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis this morning, the first book of the Bible, as we continue in our series, Joseph. Uh, would ask uh, this week, especially the first part of the week, uh, I am the designated survivor of the staff. You don't know this, uh, but uh, our entire staff of all four campuses right now is down in Atlanta getting ready for a conference that they're going to be a part of starting tomorrow. I fly out later tonight, and I'm the designated designated survivor. We don't want the plane crash to go and uh, not have any staff left. So you're stuck with me, all right? Uh, But it is going to be a great time, and they're uh, uh, attending church today. Uh, Pastor Keith has got them on a tight schedule. If you think you're having a hard time being at one of the services today, I believe they're going to five church services today, okay? Five church services. If you had all the sermon time up, it'll probably be about as long as you're sitting today. But... uh, but uh, we just uh, are looking forward. We're going to be a part of a, a, a conference that's being held by the uh, Dave Ramsey Ministry about how to promote uh, the issue of stewardship uh, in our churches and uh, to find out ways that we can learn uh, to be better stewards of all that God has given us. And so uh, we're down there as a staff, and I'll be meeting up with them later. But uh, let's get into our series again. If you haven't been with us, you've missed a lot, but that's okay. Uh, we uh, have been learning about the life and times of Joseph. And in Genesis, uh, we learn uh, that most of that book, in fact, he has more written about him than any other character in any of the stories in Genesis. Joseph uh, is a story of God doing great things through a man, all the while allowing him to face incredible difficulties along the way. And in this series, we are learning that God's detours are always good detours. And that's hard to say, especially when we get into this chapter of scripture, where we have been learning about Joseph, and we learn that he comes from a chaotic and dysfunctional background. His family's pretty messed up. And through that uh, being messed up, it came because of a lot of sins and issues in the life of Joseph's dad's life. Uh, Joseph's dad was a dad who uh, had picked favorites in the home. Of all his children, he had said that Joseph was his favorite. And he symbolized that favoritism by giving Joseph a coat of many colors. His other brothers hated Joseph for this. And, and even though the hatred was kept at bay for a while, we learned uh, a couple weeks ago that that uh, hatred would finally boil over. Joseph is sent on a journey to go see how his brothers are doing as they tend their father's flock of sheep. And he goes and he goes to check on them and make sure everything is well with them. And while he is still far off, they see him and they conspire to kill him. And through a course of events, uh, deciding not to kill him, they throw him into a pit and leave him for dead. And God, in his providential care and concern for Joseph, uh, sends a group of traitors to come. The guys think, what a great idea it is. Let's sell our brother, make some money, and get rid of our brother once and for all. They sell their brother for 20 shekels of silver and send him out, knowing he's heading down to the big world of Egypt. And we found out last week that Joseph is sent to Egypt. He's humiliated. He's harassed as a slave. He's at a slave auction where he's bought off by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar is the chief uh, leader, if you will, uh, of all of Pharaoh's uh, secret police, if you will. And uh, he is placed in uh, Potiphar's house. And he goes from being the lowest uh, of slaves all the way through God's good pleasure and through Joseph's hard work, he is elevated to second in command of all the household. In fact, it tells us that Potiphar didn't worry about anything except what he ate. 
because Joseph was in control of all the things and God blessed and prospered Joseph every step of the way. But then something uh, begins to happen that changes everything. Mrs. Potiphar starts having eyes for Joseph. And she begins to hit on Joseph. And Joseph, being an honorable and godly young man, uh, rebuffs every one of her advances. But one day, when he was working alone in the house, she came and grabbed him by the garment and told him that she wanted to sleep with him. His response was a response that we should have when temptation befalls us, get up and run. And that's exactly what he did, leaving the garment aside and running out of the house, knowing that by doing what is right, it was going to end up very bad for Joseph. And we find out at the end of our uh, passage last week that Potiphar's anger kindled against Joseph after what he had heard from his wife. And he took Joseph and he threw him into prison. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so turn in your Bibles to Genesis 39. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. There's some also in the back chairs. And you'll find our passage on page 33. Genesis 39, we're going to start in verse 20 is where we're going to pick up the story. And I'm going to read the entirety of uh, 39 and into 40. So let's look at what the word of the Lord has to share with us this morning. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them into the custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And then one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each had his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in this master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me uh, your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were blossoms shot forth. I'm sorry, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is uh, its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And, he shall pl- and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. 
Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of bread, or I'm sorry, baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will come and eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and... Lord, an incredible story we continue to have unveiled before us, a story that many of us may be acquainted with. But as we walk through this, Lord, verse by verse, passage by passage, we we are refreshed and, and renewed with a story that speaks so much to who we are. Remind us today, Lord, of our own struggles, of our own issues that we have, times where we feel completely helpless to the circumstances around us. While many of us may not find ourselves in, in, in a jail cell or in chains, we recognize that there are jail cells and chains of many kinds that harbor and, and hold your people today. Remind us that you are the one who sets the captives free. Remind us that in Joseph we see you and that we see that there is freedom, there is redemption, there is renewal uh, when we turn to you and confess our sins. Now speak to us today, Lord, that we may honor you in all that we do in the days to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When I was 17 years old, uh, I uh, lost my driver's license for a while. You may say that's no surprise, uh, but I did. My parents grounded me from driving privileges for over three months of time, which seemed like an eternity at that moment. Now you would ask, Well, why did you lose your driver's license? Did you get a speeding ticket? No. Did you get in an accident? No. I got stuck. Now, why would parents, I mean, let's really just think about this for a moment. Why in the world would parents take away their son's driver's license for the simple infraction of getting a vehicle stuck? Well, before I paint a picture of my mom and dad being cruel and unusual in their punishment, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. It was 1992. That makes me either very old or very young in your book. And it was the day that Bill Clinton would defeat George H.W. Bush in the 92 election. At that point, I wasn't all that big into uh, politics. And on that day, uh, the Chicagoland area was blanketed with the first snowfall of the year. Four inches, beautiful snowflakes coming down. It was absolutely a winter wonderland. I had my license, and I had a lot of rowdy friends, and the idea came that we should go and take our vehicles and go and just enjoy driving around in the snow. You know what that means, donuts in parking lots, finding any place you can go just to have some fun. 
Well, we were one vehicle short, and my group of buddies needed a vehicle where multiple people could be in it. And so my dad had a work van that had a bench seat in it, and I could contain in that vehicle five individuals. That was the right thing to do. And without asking, I took my dad's work van, and we headed on out. Then came midnight. By midnight, we had had all our fun. By midnight, I found myself saying, it is time for one last run, let's do this. And we went on a country road, doing all kinds of whiplashes and turns and all of that. But before I knew it, I found myself in a ditch. It was really wet that night, of course, with the snow and all of that. And now I needed to get myself out of it. I called my parents and told them, hey, I'm going to be a little late. And then I worked feverishly to try to get out of this ditch. And instead of trying to get out of the ditch by backing up, as any smart individual would do, I thought it'd be easier to drive into the neighboring field that was there. And so I did. And with great success, I began to be able to move the van farther and farther through the field, thinking I'm only uh, just a short distance from where I thought there would be an exit out of the field. But little did I know, I was digging myself deeper and deeper into a problem. About 300 yards into the field, the van came to a complete stop. I couldn't move. I hit the gas like you never have seen before, just hearing those tires spin, smelling uh, what I didn't know at the time to be a burning transmission. I couldn't get out. I found a neighboring uh, truck that was passing by. And by the way, at this point, my friends have all left me. That's a good remembrance, okay? No one was with me. A neighboring farmer said, hey, I'll try to get you out. I've got four-wheel drive. And he made it about a third of the way I did before he started to get stuck. He knew that there was only a moron who would help him in this situation. So he left and said, you know what? You're on your own. I was so muddy at the point, I needed to get a way to get back to the house. I flagged down another farmer who happened to be out, and he said, you're so dirty, you can get in the back of the truck. You're not getting in the front. So I sat in the back, got home. I walked into my parents' house, of which I was already late, with no vehicle. And that was the first question my dad asked, is where's my van? Muddied to the bottom, from the, from the top to the bottom, I took the keys of that van and I threw them to my dad and said, listen, I don't ever want to drive again. My dad says, where's the vehicle? I said, it's kind of stuck. So we went and took a look at it and with our brights on, we could barely make out what was a mud-filled van in the middle of a field. My dad says, there's no way we're going to deal with this tonight. Let's go home and we'll deal with it in the morning. We got up at the crack of dawn, probably as early as I've ever done before, and we got out there, and by the time we had gotten there, word had already gone out that there was a van in the middle of a field. Fifty farmers' trucks are lined up, all pointing, trying to figure out who is the dummy who put the van in the field. Of course, I have to do the walk of shame. And everybody's sitting there going, how in the world is this van going to get out? Now, remember, my parents owned a catering business at the time. The only part of the van that was still left uncovered by mud was our nice sign that told us what the catering company's name was. So it's sitting there like a billboard in the middle of this field. Now, what I don't know is that what I've done in the middle of the night is park the van in the deepest mud bog you've ever seen. As you look at the field, it just condowns to one point, and there it is at the bottom of this field, this van. A guy says, hey, listen, Bill, your your dummy son, he's put you in this tough spot. Uh, We'll get a tractor. We'll pull him out. First tractor comes. First tractor gets stuck. 
Second farmer says, oh, that's a case tractor. Let me get my Ford tractor. We'll pull it out. And there's this little bartering and wagering going on. And I'm okay because it's taking the pressure off of me because I know I'm a dead man. And he brings the second tractor. It gets stuck. Now word is starting to come out that we're going to leave the van there until the ground hardens. And it's just going to have to sit there until things freeze over. The one thing that wasn't freezing over at that point was my father's anger, by the way. He's getting angry. He's looking at me saying, this is my livelihood, this is my work van, and you've destroyed it. And there's a chance I may not have this for a month. You've got to be kidding me. Then, as a savior of saviors, a man stepped forward. I think he was an angel, unaware, okay? He started talking that he had just bought the John Deere 45 million tractor. And he said that it had four tires on each side, all on their own differential. And he had just bought it from the dealership. And if there was a tractor out there that could pull out this van, it was his. It would take a work of all kinds of people. He would need a police escort because it was so big it would take up a roadway. And so that's exactly what happened. And now there's more than 100 vehicles and this country road watching this unfold. The guy gets out there, he pulls out the first two tractors. I'm like, redemption, finally, things are turning around for me. Then he goes, we're going to go get the van. And we get out into the van. I kid you not, we are knee deep in mud, okay? And there's a whole bunch of farmers out there, and they're loving this. They think this is the greatest thing in the world, and it's time to hook up the chain. And I have the gall, 17 years old, not a very bright individual. I said, who's going to hook it up? (laughs) I'm not going to repeat some of the words that I heard that day. But the chain was thrown on the ground. They said, start digging, boy. You got this in here. You're going to get it out. And so I get down on my hands and knees. I'm all muddy. Now I'm even muddier. It's cold. It's wet. We hook it up. And when he begins to pull out that van, you hear the greatest suction cup sound. The van is freed. We come out. And my job for the next year is cleaning out the mud. When I sold that vehicle, by the way, there was still mud in places I never would have thought I would have found it. I was stuck, and I deserved everything that came as a result of it. But as we look at Joseph's life this morning, we find Joseph stuck. And for many this morning, you may find yourself stuck. Oh, it may not be a vehicle, and many of us know what it's like to be stuck. You want to progress forward. You want to move, but you're unable to. And you find yourself hitting the gas harder and harder, thinking, if I just give it a little more torque, a little more gas then I'll be set free. And all you do is you find yourself digging yourself deeper and deeper into ruts. Joseph found himself, while he was doing everything right in Potiphar's house, he finds himself, out of no fault of his own, being thrown into prison. Now, he had been thrown in a pit before. His brothers had thrown him in a pit in Genesis 37, but that, at best, was maybe a couple days, if maybe even less than that, maybe a couple hours. But Joseph's pit is going to be a lot longer this time. Joseph spent time in prison for over a decade. This pit wasn't going to leave him as quickly. And the question we have to ask this morning is, wherever pit we find ourselves in, whatever prison cell that may be in our way this morning, we have to ask the question, why am I there? What does God want me to do while I'm in that? And then figure out how God will show himself to be glorious in that process. Maybe today your pit is a marriage that's stagnant. Maybe it's financial troubles. Maybe it's a child that you just are having just the hardest time working through. That was my parents' stuckness for a while. 
Maybe it's all manners of things. Maybe it's a a dead-end job. Uh, Maybe it's relational issues. Whatever it is, God wants you to know this morning that your stuckness isn't out of his sight, and it isn't so big that he can't take care of it. So let's look at a couple things about being stuck and what we learned from Joseph, because it's not the time to spin the wheels. Notice, first of all, that if we get bogged down in life, we get stuck, we need to recognize a scenario that got us stuck. We need to recognize what got us there. I can walk through, and I gave you a very short synopsis of what happened. I can show you six or seven reasons and scenarios that put me in the situation that I found myself in. Number one, I shouldn't have taken the vehicle. Number two, I shouldn't have been out that late. Number three, I shouldn't have been doing what I was with that vehicle. Number four, I should have never been on the road that I was on. Number five, the vehicle was never built to be able to do the things that I was wanting it to do. Number six, the second I got stuck, I should have called mom and dad. And number seven, I was too busy trying to fix it myself that I found myself getting deeper and deeper. I could go on and on. I know why I got stuck. Have you ever noticed, and we're coming to another Chicago winter, whenever we find ourselves stuck, you find yourself spinning out and into a ditch, the first thing that everybody asks is, what happened? How'd you get there? What took place? And when we get stuck in life, the question we have to ask is, how did I get myself here? What happened? How did finances roll out of control? Why did my marriage become so cold and lifeless? Why is my relationship with my child so broken? Why do I find myself in this trial or tribulation from a medical standpoint? We have to ask those questions, and if you're like me, you do. When you find yourself stuck and not moving ahead, unable, paralyzed in your ability to move ahead or forward, you stop and you ask the question, how did I get there? Well, the Bible talks about two reasons as to why you're stuck this morning. Number one, it's because of your disobedience. It's because of your or my disobedience. We have made bad decisions. We know what God and his word says, but we've made a decision to go our own way. We made a decision to pursue our own desires over his, to choose our way over his way. And so what begins to happen is, is we get to, if you will, uh, point C or D in our journey, and we look back and say, how did I get here? And if we really were honest with ourselves this morning, we would see that we made decisions that put us exactly where we're at. That it is because of fault on our part. Now, that was the story behind my getting stuck. It was all my fault. I wasn't driving to work or or doing what I was supposed to and just happened to find myself getting stuck in some mud. I had made some really bad decisions along the way. We see this in Scripture. We see this in the life of Jacob. Jacob sees himself getting stuck. This is Joseph's dad over and over again, not because of uh, just circumstances, but because he made unwise decisions. And unwise decisions gave birth to more unwise decisions that then would result in all manner of bad consequences in his life. We see this in the life of the children of Israel. God is so good and so gracious to free them from Egyptian slavery. And instead of following his ways, instead of being thankful and grateful for what God has done, they, they begin to murmur. They begin to complain and grumble. 
And God says, listen, your sinful and rebellious hearts are going to keep you just wandering in the wilderness. And I wonder if they said, why are we here? Why aren't we moving forward? It should only be a couple weeks' journey from where we're at in Egypt to Canaan. It shouldn't take very long. Why would it take 40 years? And God continued to point to them and said, because instead of following me, instead of listening to me, you did it your own way. We see this in the quintessential story of Samson. Samson could have had everything going well for him, but continued to choose himself over God, and he would find himself in troubled situations time and time again. We see it in the life of David, a man after God's own heart, who made some unwise decisions later in his life that would cost him greatly. And when he found himself being chased by his own children, when he found himself having to deal with the fighting of who would get his throne, he couldn't throw up his hands and say, I don't know why this happened. He would know exactly why it happened because he chose his own ways instead of God's. Joseph finds himself stuck. And before you think that Joseph uh, is sitting in a minimum security uh, prison, I want you to recognize that the psalmist tells us a little bit of the story. In fact, write this passage down, Psalm 105, verses 16 through 21. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 21. The psalmist says the following, speaking of the present circumstances of Joseph. Joseph's feet hurt with fetters, and his neck was put in a collar of iron. He had chains around his feet, the psalmist says, and he had a necklace of iron around him, probably with a chain hooked up to it. You want to think of a picture of being stuck? This uh, iron would hold him in, in a small area. That his whole existence would take place in, in maybe only a couple feet of roaming space. And he finds himself there. And I wonder if he sat and in those moments sat there and said, why am I here? And the first thought is maybe God's judging me. Maybe God's judging me for sin. And, and we need to ask that question uh, when bad things happen, when we find ourselves not moving ahead. We need to ask the question, Lord, am I here because I'm sinning? And I wonder if Joseph went through and rewound his tape and said, listen, did I do anything bad with Potiphar's wife? No, I did exactly what God wanted. Did I obey the commands of Potiphar and do everything that he wanted? Yes, and the Lord prospered me in it. Was there any sin in dealing with my brothers? No. I were honest with them. I went and followed the commands of my father, and he rewound. And so the question that Joseph has is, if disobedience didn't put me in this prison, then what did? And I want you to notice the second thing that the Bible tells us about uh, getting stuck is that you may be stuck because of divine appointment. You may be stuck because of divine appointment. Notice that we have nothing in any of the scriptures that tell us that the reason why Joseph was in prison because of a fault of his own. In fact, we know in Genesis 39 that he has done exactly what he's supposed to do. He has followed the words and commands of his uh, owner, Potiphar. And Potiphar has loved having him as a servant. He's been a model slave and servant. In fact, he has been elevated over and over again to being of equality with Potiphar. And we're going to see that. And, and, you know, one of the things that we've talked about earlier in this series is that Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph is, is a picture, a portrait of Jesus. 
And we've seen that uh, in Joseph's elevation from slave uh, to being second in command, if you will, to always seemingly finding himself at the right hand of someone else. We've seen that with Joseph and his father, Jacob. We've seen him, God, elevating him to be the favorite uh, of them and uh, taking on the birthright of his brothers. We've seen this in Potiphar's house where he goes from being a slave and he's elevated to second in command to Potiphar himself. Equality, the text tells us, full equality with Potiphar. We're going to learn today that in the prison, Joseph is going to again be elevated to a place of second only to the warden. That whatever Joseph said, went. And this is a picture of Jesus Christ who humbled himself, who made himself nothing, and who was elevated over and over again to the right hand of the Father, full of equality. And so here we see this taking place, this picture of Jesus who tells us that as we look at Christ's life, as we look at Joseph's life, then we learn that it wasn't because of disobedience that Joseph or Jesus suffered, but it was for doing right. God had planned, God had appointed that Joseph, and later on that Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, would suffer for doing what is right, for suffering for righteousness' sake. Here's how we know. The first reason we know that Joseph uh, is there not uh, in prison is not because of his own sin, but because of divine appointment is how he got there. I want you to recognize this morning that in Egyptian culture, if you were to have tried to assault your master's wife, there was one penalty for it. You'd be dead. You'd be dead. Why in the world is Joseph alive? His life should have been taken right then and there. Potiphar was judge, jury, and executioner. That was his job. He was the chief uh, man over all the executions in Egypt. And here, a sin takes place, a crime takes place by a lesser man, a slave, a foreigner, and it would be really quick. There'd be no hung jury. The only thing that would have been hung would have been Joseph himself. Why in the world does he find himself in prison? Bible scholars believe the reason why is Potiphar doesn't buy his wife's story. Now Potiphar says, hey, we got to get rid of Joseph. Why? Because it's your wife. You're going to always, husband, side with your wife. That's the right thing to do, right? And, and love and, and our relationship and our need for that, that spouse in our lives is always going to make us a little more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, focused in on her desires instead of maybe even the truth. And I believe that Potiphar's wife has a history of this. I don't think this is the first time. And Potiphar's angry. It doesn't tell us uh, all as to why he's angry. But instead of killing Joseph, which would have been the intention, which would have been the focus, he puts him in prison. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Remember, Joseph's brothers want to kill him, be done with him, a quick and an ugly death, be done with it. But then they don't. They throw him in a pit. And it would move Joseph to where God wanted him to be. And we see God's appointment taking place in the life of Joseph. Now, the second thing that you need to see is that there's clear and uh, full absolute, uh, absolution to the sin of Joseph because he was innocent. 
He articulates later on when he could have said, listen, I'm in this prison because I've done wrong. He holds the story later on. Listen, I've done no wrong. I did no wrong that got me in Egypt. I've done no wrong that's gotten me into this jail. I am innocent. And when it would have been easy for him to say, listen, yeah, I got too close to my boss's wife. Yeah, I, I was a, a grown, red-blooded uh, Hebrew man. I have needs, and, and I made a mistake. He says, no, listen, that's not the case. I'm here under no sin of my own. And what we need to recognize this morning is why does God do this? Why does God allow you and I to get stuck in life? Why does God allow troublesome circumstances to happen? There are three things I want you to write down. They're not in your outline. But God allows these things, first of all, to draw you closer. To draw you closer. God allows circumstances in your life to bring you closer to him. Maybe success was starting to uh, make Joseph feel comfortable. Maybe success is doing that for you. Maybe you're becoming a little more independent. And you're not praying as much. You're not asking the Lord for wisdom as much. And you say, you know what? Things are good. I got money in the account. My health is good. Everything is going the way I needed to, just as I planned. And so really, I'll pay some homage to God, but I really don't need him because I'm doing pretty well on my own. God allows the storm clouds of life to come. He allows the loud claps of thunder and the broad strikes of lightning. To bring us back as a little child does when they're fearful of a storm. They come running to their father and they say, protect me, hold me close. And trials and tribulations cause us to draw closer to God. Notice the next thing that it does. It causes us to dig deeper. In times of drought, in times of famine, what what happens in the plant's life is that they will seek for a water source and they will dig their roots deeper and deeper and deeper until they find it. And times of struggle, times of famine, times of lack in our lives will cause our spiritual roots to grow deeper, seeking the sustenance and the provision that we need. And so it will cause us to not trust that everything's going to be on demand, but that sometimes we've got to dig a little deeper to find it. So it draws us closer, causes us to dig deeper, and finally it makes us stronger. Joseph is learning at the school of hard knocks. He's learning that life is going to be difficult, and he's beginning to strengthen muscles that he's going to need at a later time. He's going to learn what it is to wait, and we'll talk about that next week, and, and, and the school of waiting that can grow us and build us and make us stronger for the next step in the journey. The Bible tells us over and over again that we are going to suffer for righteousness' sake, and that is good, and it's okay. And there will be times where we'll ask, Lord, why did you do this to me? Lord, why did you give me this illness? Lord, why did you bring this financial calamity upon me? Lord, why did you take away my job? Lord, why did you allow uh, my kids to not have a strong relationship with you or with their mom or their dad? Why, Lord? Why? And in those moments, we are to draw close to God, we are to dig deeper, and we are to allow God to make us stronger. Joseph did that. Joseph recognized that this was not because of sin, 
but because of divine appointment. And I want you to know this morning, if you find yourself stuck, ask that question. Because it will determine what you do. The Bible says if it's because of sin that you find yourself stuck, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed, the book of James says. And so maybe you're stuck this morning because you've been a bad spouse. Maybe you're stuck and you lost your job because you were a bad employee. Maybe you're stuck or... or, or, or um, uh, f- finding fault um, in your uh, relationship with others, maybe it's because you haven't been the best of friend. And so we have to ask that question because if there's wrongdoing on our part, we need to confess. But if there is no wrongdoing on our part, and we find ourselves there because God has in his divine plan and purpose set you there, then we need to accept it. And we need to ask God, what will you have of me now? And that's where we see Joseph. Notice the second thing I want you to see this morning. When you're stuck, refuse self-pity and start serving. Notice in verse 20 of Genesis 39, it says the following. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there in the prison. Whatever was done, he was the one who did it. The keeper paid no attention, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. So he's put in prison. And I want you to notice that nowhere in the text, not a single place in the text, does it say he complained. He murmured. He grumbled. But how true is that of us? We get stuck and we start spinning our wheels through grumbling, through murmuring, and through complaining. Well, I don't know why I'm here, Lord, but I want you to know I'm not very happy. Everybody else is doing great, God, but not me. I'm following you. My neighbor's doing great. He doesn't give a rip about you, God. But I follow you. I do what I'm supposed to. And I can't keep up with my bills. My marriage is struggling. My kids aren't where they're supposed to be. And I don't get it, God. I thought you were to take care of your people. Joseph could have done that. And he would be in this prison for over a decade. And nowhere in the text does it say Joseph grumbles or he complains. And so we need to stop finding a corner to feel sorry for ourselves. We need to stop shaking our fists at God when things don't go our way. We need to stop moaning and groaning about our circumstances. And we need to do something different. And Joseph shows us. Notice, Joseph sees the opportunities that were before him. And so should we. Take notice of verse 22. Whatever needed to be done, he was the one who did it. When you find yourself stuck... The propensity that you and I have is to withdraw. When things go bad or things don't look right, we will quickly say, I need to stop serving. I need to stop going to church. I need to stop engaging with my Christian friends. I'm stuck. And the last thing I want to do is go and show my stuckness to a group of people. The devil tells you that because you're stuck, you're disqualified from ministry. I wonder if Joseph felt somewhat disqualified from ministry. He found himself in prison. But he doesn't. He stops and he says, listen, I can either allow this prison to eat me up on the inside and to get me so agitated and so uh, angry that I'm good for nothing, or I can make this prison the best place that it can be. Now, that's a tall order. 
Again, this is not, you know, some wonderful place to be. This is an Egyptian prison. He probably was in some sort of dungeon, probably some sort of pit. And he looks around and he says, there are things that can be done. I can make this place a little nicer for everyone else. And it says whatever needed to be done, he was the one to do it. Now, before he became second in command of the prison, I want to just be very frank and honest with you, there were probably a whole lot of toilets to clean in the process. There was probably a lot of things that nobody wanted to do. And the prison warden would say, hey, we need someone to do it. And he would bring in his guards and he would bring the whips and he would bring all manner of weapons and and they would beat down on the prisoners for them to do these tasks. But here comes Joseph. And Joseph says, hey, warden, I'm stuck here. There's no way I can get out. And so if I can be of help to you, if I can be of service to you, just call my name. You need the toilets clean, I'm there. You need me in the kitchen detail, I'm there. You need me to do the laundry, I'm there. You want me to clean up this place, I'm willing to do it. Whatever needs to be done, I'm willing to be there. What a great reminder for the people of God. When was the last time you weren't asked to do something, but you went asking to find something to do? That you were willing out of your time and energy to do that. Now superimposed being stuck. You find yourself sick. You find yourself without work. You find yourself in a relational mess. We're quick to pull back. But Joseph says move ahead and start serving. Don't fall into self-pity, but look around to what needs to be done. God may have you there in that prison cell for you to be the one to clean it up. He needs a willing and able individual in that demise to be willing to sweep up the place and look after the place. Joseph sees it as an opportunity. He sees his time in prison as an opportunity for him to serve and to serve others. So see the opportunities when you find yourself in a pit. Number two, be sympathetic to others' concerns. Notice in verse uh, chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. The cupbearer was the guy who oversaw all of the food, okay? And he made sure, so here's the thing, the cupbearer is a caterer, all right? And he's making sure all the food is where it needs to be and all of that, and that when it comes out to the king... Everything's where it needs to be. That it looks right, it tastes right, everything's right. So when the pharaoh or the king puts that food into his mouth, he knows without a shadow of a doubt it's not going to kill him, it's not going to make him sick, and even more important, that he's going to enjoy it. The baker is the behind-the-scenes guy. He's the one cooking and making sure on the back end of things, so we talk about this in the food industry, there's a back-of-the-house guy and there's a front-of-the-house guy. And the back-of-the-house guy is working in the kitchen, getting everything done, seeing to it that the food is made the right way. The front-of-the-house guy is the cupbearer. He's the one that's hosting the event. He's making sure everything is just right. Now, I want you to share again uh, where we see a picture of Christ in this. The cupbearer and the baker are two criminals. And Joseph finds himself in the middle of those two. Likewise, our Lord and Savior would find himself between two criminals, right? I heard just in the parking lot last week, I had not read of this in my readings, but that the cupbearer and the baker also may symbolize 
are coming to the communion table, bread and the cup. And as they interact with one another, we see a picture of when we find ourselves in the pit, we need the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ to redeem us from the pit we find ourselves in. Again, pictures of Christ over and over again. But here we have the cupbearer and the baker. And I want you to notice in this, they find themselves having a dream. Notice verse 5, at one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker, the king of Egypt, while they were confined in prison. Each had his own dream, and each dream had its own interpretation. Notice verse 6, when Joseph came in the morning, he saw they were troubled. He asked in verse 7, why are your faces downcast? Now listen, in prison everybody's faces are downcast. I can't think anybody's sitting there singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. They're all disappointed. They're all angry. It's another day in prison. They woke up and they're in the same place that they found themselves before. And maybe this morning that's exactly where you find yourself. A new day and nothing's different than it was the day before. And if it is, it hasn't affected you in a good way. And here Joseph comes and he finds himself in the same spot. There's no opportunity for release, no opportunity for early probation, nothing like that. And he walks through doing his daily duties, and he sees two of the men in the prison downcast. And he asks the question, what's bothering you? He asks the question because he wants to try to figure out how he can be of service to them. Again, one of the things that we don't want to do when we find ourselves stuck is reach out to others. Because we're too busy dealing with our own issues, right? We're too busy dealing with our own struggles. The last thing we want to do is go and jump in someone else's pit, right? Joseph finds himself in his own prison, in his own pit, and he's willing to say, you know what, I'll jump from my pit and I'll jump into your pit to see if I can help you out. And some of us need to do that. We need to be sympathetic. We need to take our attention and our focus off of ourselves and onto others. The book of Philippians tells us that. That we are to look not only to our interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's not just true in the good times, but it's all the more true in the difficult times as well. Each of these men tell them their dream. One has got a good dream, if you will, and the other's a nightmare. And Joseph begins to tell them the reason for the dreams and the interpretation. Cupbearer, in three days you're going to be reinstated. And you're going to be back in your place in the courtroom, or in a courtroom, in the throne room, a pharaoh. Everything's going to go great with you. Baker gets excited and says, hey, I had this dream. Tell me what it is. In three days you're going to die. Good news and bad news. Again, not to, to continue to point these things out, but again, a picture... Maybe of Christ. Jesus would be hung on a cross between two criminals. One would be with him in paradise. The other in condemnation. And so we see this picture. And what we see is a reinstatement and a response of telling the truth, even though it's bad news, to the other. But before we get there, because I'll address this in a moment, I want you to notice the final thing that we see when we're stuck. And that is we need to tell our story honestly and openly. We need to tell our story honestly and openly. He tells the cupbearer, hey, things are going to turn out for you well. You're going to be in Pharaoh's presence here in three days. Get ready, man. You're moving on up. You know, I wonder if the Jefferson's music started playing. Okay? You're heading up to a deluxe apartment in the sky. 
Things are looking good for you. And notice what Joseph says. He says, hey, when all this happens, don't forget to tell Pharaoh about me. He says in verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I indeed was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. And so Joseph says, listen, if it would be, uh, if it would be uh, an opportunity for you to talk to Pharaoh, would you tell Pharaoh about me? Would you share my story with Pharaoh? And he begins to honestly and openly share his issue. Here's my issue. I'm in Egypt against my will. I was sold here. I was stolen away. And I want Pharaoh to know that if anybody could fix my problem, it could be Pharaoh. And then I want you to know that I'm in this pit, I'm in this prison, not because I did something wrong, but I'm an innocent man. And you have seen my innocence as I've walked through these halls or these catacombs, if you will, of this dungeon. And you've seen me serve and you've seen the upstanding man I am. Would you see it in your opportunity to tell Pharaoh about my story? Now I want you to know a couple things of what... what Joseph does. Number one, he speaks honestly about his story. What we read of what he tells, there's no exaggeration. There's no lie. There's no covering up of the truth. He gives an honest assessment of what's transpired so far. Number two, he shares openly he doesn't want to be in this pit. I want out. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. We see that with our Lord and Savior who spoke to his father and said, if there's any way this cup can pass by me, Lord... I want out, but I'm willing to stick to it if it be your will. And so Joseph says, I want out, and some of us this morning want out, but what we haven't done is we haven't been honest with one another about it. We haven't spoken openly about it. As American Christians, we keep everything close to the vest. So someone will ask you this morning, your life has fallen apart, you find yourself stuck, and someone will say, how, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Everything's great. And you go out in the car and you bawl your eyes out. And then, and some of you have the audacity to say, and the church doesn't care. Well, we're not omniscient like our God is, right? We've got to tell one another our struggles. We've got to tell one another that we're hurting. And, and so this is where we need to be sharing with one another, hey, life isn't good. I feel stuck right now. Some circumstances have happened. Maybe it's because of some of my own wrongdoing. Maybe it's because of God's divine appointment. I don't know why I'm here, but it's not fun. I don't know why God's got me in this prison, and I want out, but he hasn't shown me the door. And we need to tell our story, just as Joseph did, openly, not exaggerating, so that we might be honest and might be able to receive encouragement from those around us. Finally, I want you to see that God uh, tells us through this story that we can remember that God shines brightest in hopeless situations. Once again, we see God is with Joseph. Three times in our passage we see God is with Joseph, God is with Joseph, God is with Joseph. And what a great reminder again that God is with you and I. He's with us in the good times just as he was in Potiphar's house. When we're successful, God is with us. And when we are hurting, when we're suffering, when we're struggling, God is with us there as well. Now I want you to see how does God shine brightly. How was God going to shine brightly in, in a dungeon? Probably not much light in that dungeon. Probably not a lot going on in that prison. 
How would God shine brightly? Number one, God shines brightly through what I want to call our grit. Our grit. What I mean by grit is our perseverance, our endurance. And that grit is what I like to say is God's required intense training. God gives us training as Christians. And there are times it's intense. And it is required. It's a part of the role of being a Christian. And the Bible talks about this over and over again. Suffering well like a good soldier. Enduring hardship like a good soldier. Being willing to continue to pour in time and energy. Fully knowing that right now things aren't going for you. Getting up and doing what you're called to do even when you don't feel like it. Why does God want you to do that? Number one, it's for your good. But number two, it shows the world that we have hope even when things aren't going the way we want to. Every day that uh, Joseph worked in the prison was a picture that Joseph had a hope that nobody else had. That Joseph served a God that nobody else served. And he begins to show them through his hard work and his tenacious spirit that even though I find myself stuck... I'm going to leave my stuckness to God, and I'm going to serve to the best of my ability, not only the God I serve, but the boss who's in in authority over me, and I'm going to serve those who are around me. And we need to show that kind of grit and that kind of endurance and not be complaining, not be ones who are crying about how bad we've got it, but recognize that sometimes it is better to be in the prison of God than to be in the palace by ourselves. And some of you need to recognize that this morning. Some of you need to recognize it's better to be exactly where God has you than to be somewhere else by yourself. Notice, secondly, we show God's greatness and his shining brightly in our lives through our gifts. The story comes, of course, and it tells us that there are some dreams to be interpreted. And we're going to learn this is a gift that Joseph has. And he doesn't hear these dreams and say, hey, listen, I have got this skill, I've got this ability, I've had these dreams myself. You see, he says, listen, aren't the interpretations of dreams belonging to God? Meaning, isn't God the only one that can do this? But tell me your dreams, and I'll go to my God, and I'll ask him for the interpretation, and I'll come back and see if I can be of help to you. And he interprets the dreams. One of the ways that we help in shining, uh, letting God shine bright in our times of struggle is by serving and using our gifts. And then pointing back and saying, hey, listen, God is the one who instills this ability into me. God is the one who makes this happen through me. Now, I want you to notice one other quick thing about this. That when we use our gifts, it reminds us that God still remembers us. Think about for a moment, what started all of this mess? Two dreams he had, Joseph, remember? The stalks are going to bow down, the sun, moon, and stars, they're going to bow down. And his brothers hated it. And then the dreams come, now years later. And two of the guys he's with have these incredible dreams. And I wonder if they said, I had the most vivid dream I've ever had in my entire life. I never dreamed like that. And I wonder if Joseph said, hey, wait a minute, I had a moment like that once. I've had some dreams like that. And I wonder if in that moment, as he's serving and honoring God in that pit... That there wasn't some encouragement in Joseph's heart. God still is around. God still has got a plan. 
Those dreams that I had back in the day, those dreams still haven't come true. So I definitely am not going to die in this prison because God's got bigger plans. He's got greater plans for me. And so here, as he interprets the dreams and he watches those dreams come true, dream number one, he's restored the cupbearer is to the throne room of Pharaoh, just as God told Joseph it would. Likewise, Baker, you're going to die in three days. You're going to be hung by a tree. It comes true. Joseph then rewinds in his life and he says, wait a minute, I had two dreams and they haven't come true. God is not done with me. And when we start using our gifts and serving God, God reminds us in our giving. God reminds us in our serving. God reminds us in our care for others and our concern for the things of God that he's not done with us as well. And so he reminds us there's a dream left to be had. And the story tells us that God isn't done with you yet, Joseph. Endure, suffer well, and keep serving until God says enough is enough. It's time to come out. Here's the great thing that I want to close with. This morning you find yourself stuck. And all of us have at some point found ourselves stuck. And we have been reminded of this great truth that it is Jesus Christ who delivers us and sets us free, right? That same Jesus who set the captives free, who set you and I free from our sin and our penalty of our infractions before God, set us free. He broke the chains of sin and death. Is the same God who finds yourself today in your tough spot, in your difficult trial, and he's the one, once again, who will set you free if you will turn to him. If you will pursue his ways over your own. If you'll stop moaning and groaning about your circumstances and start giving God the praise that is due his name. Joseph figured it out, and we do as well, that when we get stuck, stop spinning your tires and start turning to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, I just thank you for this passage. I thank you because there are so many times we in our lives find ourselves stuck. We find ourselves stuck through numerous uh, situations and scenarios. So, Lord, I pray, whether it's by our own sin, that we would confess that to you because you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to endure through the consequences of some of our wrong decisions or wrong actions. But, Lord, maybe we find ourselves in this situation because you've placed us there. You've put us there for a purpose and a plan. And, Lord, if that's the case this morning that we would again suffer well, that we would endure those hardships. And we would do so not grumbling and moaning, but that we would do so seeking to honor you every step of the way. Lord, don't allow us to withdraw, but allow us to move forward. Allow us to do all that we can to serve others and to honor you. Lord, let Joseph's model be a model for us when we feel that we can't move forward. Wherever, Lord, you may have us, Lord, let us see the opportunities that are there. The people that need to be served. The situations and the, and the scenarios that allow for our stuckness to be used for your glory. Now, Lord, give us a wonderful week now. As we go about, as we look for the opportunities that you place before us, Lord, let us be equal to the task. Empower us by your spirit to do that. That we may live those gritty lives, if you will, Lord being willing to do the hard stuff, being willing to be involved in your intense training so that we may grow stronger and closer and deeper in our walks with you. 
We love you and thank you that just as you were with Joseph, you are with us today. And you'll be with us for this week. And you'll give us what we need to accomplish all that concerns us. Now send us forth from this place, Lord, in peace and in the fellowship of one another. We love you and we give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.